Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that, that, that all of this attention frightens me for whatever reason. There's all this uh, enthusiasm and attention on this very first project and that, that when I make the second one, it'll be a disaster because people will say like, oh, he was a one-trick pony. He had one good film in him. It was like a one-hit wonder. So there's just far more responsibility than I've ever been, been asked to handle before. Core Jefferson might have to get used to the attention. His first film, American Fiction, has been nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay for a script Cord wrote. Before he became a director, Cord Jefferson was a journalist, a pretty successful one. He was working for the online publication Gawker as its West Coast editor. Ten years ago, Gawker was a big deal, widely read. Cord, though, wanted something different. So he walked away from that prominent job in journalism to try something he'd never done before, write for television. He started writing on a show called Survivor's Remorse. After a dry spell, where he nearly quit and went back to journalism, he started landing some gigs. The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore and Master of None. Then, in 2018... He broke through in a big way, writing for three top-tier, award-winning shows, The Good Place, Succession, and winning an Emmy for his episode of Watchmen. Now, Cord Jefferson is not merely a TV writer. He is a successful, Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Today, I talk pictures with Cord Jefferson. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz, and this is Talking Pictures, a podcast about movies, about memories, and all the stuff that happens in between. Turner Classic Movies makes this podcast with the streaming service Max, where you can see some of the movies mentioned in this episode. American Fiction had its debut at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2023, winning the Audience Award. Critics soon followed suit. American Fiction... It's based on a novel by Percival Everett called Erasure. It's the story of Monk Ellison, played by Jeffrey Wright. He's a professor and struggling novelist. Monk's books are not bestsellers. Frustrated by books from black authors that catch fire, Monk decides to write a novel that exploits every stereotype of black culture. He means it as a joke, not expecting anyone to actually publish it. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. 
Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. The film is both a satire of the publishing industry and a family drama. I talked with Cord the day the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild announced their nominations. Um, so, uh, first of all, I don't know whether, do you ever, th- have you ever thought about acting or you, do you have that itch at all? Uh, I hadn't until, uh, I directed this film and Jeffrey Wright told me, uh, the star of the film, he said, you know, he said, even if you aren't interested in acting as a profession, you should try acting because it will help you interact with actors on sets, uh, in a better way. So it's something that I've been kicking around and I think I'm going to start taking acting classes soon, not necessarily, uh, to do anything with it, but just to maybe help me as a director. But who knows? Why, why, why do you ask? I act for the dumbest reason ever is that, you know, obviously people I've known, don't know, um, what I do an interview with, I want to see, you know, what, what you look like. And yeah, you have, uh, you look totally different with a beard or without beard and with or without glasses. Like, so I was like, oh my yeah. God, Cord could play triplets, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. A totally, like, I, I mean, I was looking, I'm like, not the same guy. No way. Uh, like, <laughs> uh, it's Master uh, of disguise. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. I mean, I like, I have scruff most of the time and then I go on air clean shaven and I use, you know, I like take my glass, I wear contacts like to play basketball, but I, I, I'm still me. Like, I'm not fooling yeah. anybody. I think you could fool some people. Um, I switch it up a lot. Um, so, hey, uh, uh, this is a big day uh, for you uh, as we record this. Um, uh, yeah. And the results will be in by the time people hear it, I suspect. But congratulations. I mean, your film, American Fiction, you got three uh, SAG awards uh, for two of your actors and the cast, which, of course, is a, a, a great reflection of your work. And then the DGA, first time filmmakers uh, nomination. That must feel uh, well. You tell me what 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 what's this is your first film, and 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 here are the accolades pouring in. Yeah, I mean it. It is uh, equal parts thrilling and and overwhelming and terrifying. You know, I, I think that it, it is, as you said. You know, I, I've been doing. I've been writing for for quite a while, and and when I first started writing, I was a journalist in in various capacities, and and you know, very frequently my job was just me and my computer alone in a room and, and working with an editor from time to time. But for the most part, it's a solitary, it was a solitary exercise. And so now um, to be sort of front and center and, and to no longer be alone in my room, but to be, you know, in front of cameras and 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 talking to people all the time, it's a change of pace for me. But, but I'm really proud of the film. I'm really, I, I really love it. Uh, I'm really proud of the work that the cast and crew put in. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just really, really, uh, overwhelmed by the reception. It, it has been beyond my wildest dreams. We made this movie for not much money and very little time. Uh, I was told when, when we started submitting it to film festivals to not, um, get my hopes up too high because this was a competitive year for whatever reason, every single, huge director in the world decided to put out a movie this year. And so it was like, you know, you may not even get into the Toronto film festival, which was the one we were aiming for. So I was jumping up and down for joy in my kitchen. The day that I found out we were even getting into Toronto, I didn't allow myself to think of 
then winning the audience award and then being nominated for all these other awards. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly, I, I didn't even allow myself to dream this big. I have a feeling, well, because I want to talk about it. We're going to talk about fear, being afraid, um, uh, a fair amount. Cause I, I'm afraid you said a lot of things. I've read a lot of things you've said and listened and it resonates with me. But one of the things you said, like the, you know, as the SAG awards come in and this director's guild thing, and you're, you're one of the 10 best films of the year from the American film Institute. Um, what's the terrifying part of that? You, what you said is terrifying. What, what, what is terrifying that you won't be able to make the second one? Yeah. I think what's terrifying is, um, well, a, the sort of, uh, just, I think that, that, that all of this attention, um, frightens me for whatever reason. I'm not, I'm not used to, like I said, I'm not, I've never really sort of, I've never really thought about acting. I had never really uh, put myself in front of the camera. Really, I've never, uh, I've never sort of courted attention. And I think that it's 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 a little un- it's a little uncomfortable. I feel a little a little uncomfortable doing all of this. And I think that um, it's something that I'm learning to do because I understand now that it's part of the job, and that if I want to continue to do this, then I need to be prepared for this. And so it's something that I'm learning and. Um, maturing into as, as it goes along. But I think that that's frightening. I think that I'm frightened about exactly as you said, that, that there's all this, uh, enthusiasm and attention on this very first project. And that, uh, not that I won't be able to make the second one, but that when I make the second one, it'll be a disaster because people will say like, Oh, he was, he only had, he was a one trick pony. He had one good film and it was like a one hit wonder. So that's fear that that's fear making for me. I, I think that I'm, um, you know, the competitive nature of all of this is, 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 uh, I, I feel afraid. I feel afraid that people aren't going to go to the movie to see the, people aren't going to go to the theaters to see the film when it's out in wide release this weekend. So there's just all this stuff that, um, I'm negotiating right now that, that, uh, I hadn't, I've never negotiated before. I've been working in, you know, entertainment, uh, as a TV writer for a long time, but, this is the first time that, that it's ever really been squarely, you know, or, or largely not, I'm not the only one out there, but, but a lot of it is on my shoulders. And I think that there's just far more responsibility than I've ever been, been asked to handle before. Um, I want to talk about the, the movie uh, specifically, which I loved by the way, and my wife loved Thank also. You. I mean, we were like, Oh my God, it's, it's for grownups. This is great. Thank you. These are grownups <laughs> doing grown-up I things. I love when people I love when people say that. Oh, I loved it so much. It's like such an adult movie. It was so good. Um, so, but you said, this is another podcast you did. You said, I'm a fearful person. I'm afraid mm-hmm. of how people perceive me. I'm afraid of hurting myself. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of a lot. Uh, bravery yeah. does not come naturally to me. But the moments when I feel like I've done the best in my life and been proudest of myself are when I've overcome that fear to do something that scares me. And I... Mm-hmm heard you say that it was at the end of the podcast and i was like oh my god yeah totally <laughs> i'm always <laughs> and, and, yeah. and you said you used a, a phrase that is probably very familiar in psychology uh, but i didn't hurt had not heard exactly but uh, which is a little ignorant probably but you said you know you have imposter syndrome and i definitely yes, have sir. imposter syndrome i've had it forever yes, sir. That i'm gonna be the first dumb yeah. member of my family that everybody's gonna figure out that that again, yeah, it's just, you know, this is, there's nothing really special there. It's a mile wide, but it's like a, it's an eighth of an inch deep. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's been a, 
that's been something that I've dealt with my entire life. I think that, you know, and I think particularly now in the midst of all this, you know, it was something that I, that I felt before I went on set. The first day that I was on set, I almost passed out. I started seeing spots and I had to excuse myself to, I told everybody I had to go to the bathroom, but really I had to just walk away and make sure that I didn't pass out in front of the cast and crew because I was so nervous. Uh, I, I have high anxiety all the time. It's been something that I've struggled with my, my entire life. And yeah, I think that it, it, it is, um, it is in particularly sort of, it's, it's become particularly daunting in, in all of this because I'm just waiting for, um, I'm waiting for, for the other shoe to drop. You know, it's, I'm always, I'm always sure that there's going to be some tragedy around the corner and that that is my, um, that is my uh, biggest fault. And I think, you know, it's, uh, my insecurity is, I, I think I'm just a very classic writer in this case of just sort of stricken with insecurity and yet at the same time desperate to get my work and 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 stuff in front of as many people as possible it's a really it's a weird it's a weird internal struggle where it's like i'm confident that all the work that i do is terrible and yet i want the world to see how terrible that work is for some reason it is a, it is it is my biggest uh uh internal, right. you don't think uh, this is conflict. crap let me show you this is crap yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this is a novel, right? Uh, it came from a novel, Erasure, right? Uh, Percival yes. Everett, right? Yes. So you yes, read that right. novel in like 2020, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this is great. And how do you get the rights? Percival Everett, uh, I was sort of, it was one of these things where I was just so obsessed with the book. I read it over the holidays in December 2020. And I remember it feeling like almost electrified in my hands. Like, I, and then as soon as I was done, I remember feeling jittery, like, Oh my God, I need to, I need to start working on this. But to, in order to start working on it, I needed to get the rights. And I was really frustrated because it was over the holidays and I knew that I couldn't talk to the author until, you know, a couple of weeks later after the holidays were over. And I was frantic because I was like, what if the rights are already gone? And I, and I've missed the opportunity. It was, waiting those sort of two weeks was was hell and then uh, eventually though I got on the I got on the phone with Percival through his agent and we chatted I found out the rights were available and then Percival just wanted to talk to me for a half an hour he said let's just have a phone call and so got me on the phone he asked me you know if I, I can't remember exactly but I, I believe the gist of it was you know what did you like about the book what's your background as an artist uh, who are you thinking of casting in the film just general questions like that. And, and, uh, you know, I talked to him very casually and he said, okay. And he hung up and I found out later that day that, um, he had agreed to give me the rights to the book for free for, uh, six months. He said, he said, I'll give you the rights for six months for free. And then if you can write a script and if something comes of the script, then you can, you can pay me back, uh, once you sell it. And so, you know, these rights conversations can sometimes last months, if not years. And so, him, him agreeing to give me the rights for free was, uh, yeah, it is. I will. I am forever grateful to him for that, especially because I also because I found out I had found out early that he had told people no to the rights to his rights in the past. He had he had. Um, I think that he's he just wants to make sure that you understand the understand the sort of intentions and spirit of the novel. He told me that he had had before me. He had had uh, one experience where he had sold a novel of his to a TV 
uh, producer who wanted to develop it. I think it was his first novel. I can't remember, but he told this story of, of the first conversation that he had with the producer once the, once the deal was closed and he goes to sit with them and they said, uh, they said, okay, great. Our first thing is, what do you think if we make the protagonist white? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> and he said, he said, he said, I would consider that if we can make literally every other character black. Could we do that? And they said, no. And he said, well, then I don't think this is going to work out. And, 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 and so, so that was his one and only experience with adaptation, I think, before me. And uh, the, I asked him afterward why he said yes to me. And he said, because I think he said in that conversation, I realized you understood the spirit of the novel and you seemed enthusiastic about about what I was trying to do. And so um, I went and wrote the script. I'm a slow writer. Uh, I wrote the script in about four months in uh, from, I'd say, February to, to May, I guess. And, and um, we sold it to T Street, the production company, in, in uh, June or July of 2021. Did, uh, did, when he asked you what you thought about casting, did Jeffrey, was Jeffrey Wright on your mind then? Yeah, Jeffrey Wright was on my mind when I was reading the novel. I yeah. just, for whatever reason, I started thinking Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Wright as I was reading it and considering adapting it. It was, I've always been a fan of, I, I've loved Jeffrey since I first saw him in Basquiat when I was in high school. Um, and I've been sort of enamored of his work ever since then. And so he was, for whatever reason, I don't even think I started thinking like, who's the best actor for, the, for this? I think I just started reading it as if it was Jeffrey in the scenes. Yeah, well, he he's wonderful in it. I mean, Sterling K. Brown is great. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is great. John Ortiz is great. You know, John Ortiz is John Ortiz uh, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really amazing. is. Um, but everybody's good in it. You know, I mean, that's the thing when a movie yeah. works. Everybody feels uh, feels right. Who played his love? Eric Alexander is that right? Is that the love interest? Eric Alexander is Coraline. Yes. Yeah, yeah, she's so good. It's just it's just good. And Leslie Uggams for crying out loud! How do you not like something with Leslie? A Uggams? legend. Yeah, a legend. A that's legend. Great. Truly. Um, it'd been great if you'd, uh, if you'd said to him, yeah, okay. But I don't think, I don't think that, uh, Monk should be black, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. about what if Monk's white? What if yeah. it's Ryan Gosling? Yeah. Right. That's right. What if it's Ryan Gosling? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so you have these meetings then you write the script, right? And, 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 and you quoted a couple people, um, who, you know, T Street bought it, right? And they were the first ones to show interest, right? To show real interest or yes. willingness to make it. But you quote yes. people as as when you're shopping it, it, people said essentially, I really wish I worked in a place that would let me make this film, but I just can't. What did that yeah. tell you, that kind of response? Well, so the so the so the order of operations there was T Street was on board with MRC as the financiers and then we took it out to distributors and that was when that was when I really encountered uh there was a lot of producers who wanted to work it work on it with me a lot of eager producers and I went with T Street because they greenlit it in the room in the meeting they said we want to make the film we have financing we're going to make it and so so that was great but then when we went out to distributors that's when we sort of we we encountered the the skepticism it was it was uh it was people who were so enthusiastic because by that time also we had Jeffrey attached. And so it was like, we thought it was going to be, you know, an easy sell. We had this script that people were praising effusively. We had Jeffrey Wright who, who people adore. Um, and so I thought it was just going to be a slam dunk. And, and, you know, we got the door slammed in our faces a lot of, a lot of the time. And I realized that 
that it was, I'd always known this industry was risk averse. I'd always, I'd always known that that's not something new, but I think that this was, this was revelatory to me and that I didn't know how risk averse I didn't, I had never had something that people were so enthusiastic about that people were so like, Oh my God, this script. Oh my God, Jeffrey, Wright, This is amazing. And it's like, wonderful. Will you give me the the money for it then? And it was like, ah, nah, I don't, it's just too risky for us. You know, I can't make it here. It's too, it's too much of a risk. And it's like, you know, this is a movie that cost under significantly under $10 million to make. Uh, this is a movie that if, if it comes out and it flops, nobody's going bankrupt, nobody's losing their jobs. Um, but I just, uh, I realized that there is a, a real reluctance to to do something different. And I think that this movie was different in tone. I think that this movie was different in theme. I think that this movie was um this movie was was not one that's gonna sort of like be stacked with with super famous movie stars and every every role is gonna be a different hot young movie star. Uh by design it was it wasn't written that way. And so I think that people were apprehensive about it. I think that even even when I said that I wanted jazz to be the score, I, f- I felt like some reluctance there. It's sort of like I think that I was taken aback at how many people find jazz to be um, um, uh, so, some sort of uh, off-put, off-putting, I'll say. that I was, I was raised in a house with a lot of jazz, and jazz to me feels very homey and warm. And I think I was surprised to find out that a lot of people consider it uh, uh, grading, I guess. Uh, and so I, I think that, that there was just all these things about the film and my ideas and my vision that I think people were like, you know what? Not for me. Fortunately, though, we found Alana Mayo, Alana Mayo at, at, uh, at, at Orion, who's, I, I believe, I may be wrong in saying this, but I believe she is, uh, the only, if not, if not the only, then one of few, black women in Hollywood who has green light power, who can actually sort of look at something and say, we are going to do this. And so she was the one who sort of looked at us and said, okay, I'm willing to take a risk on this. This is definitely probably a white person's question then, because I, I, I my sense was that the reluctance from the distributors uh, was not that it was a story where the six principal characters are black, uh, but rather a story where there is no Spider-Man, you know, like that it was just a, you know, um, there was nothing they could count on, you know, but I guess it's probably both, but you know. Yeah. I think that there is, I think that there, yes, I think it's a little column A, a little column B. Look, I I think that people, people ask me, you know, why do you, and watching people after they watch the movie, they say, why do you think, you know, what, what is, what do you uh, wager is the reason why these people make the same movies about black experience, right? About slavery and about inner city violence and, and gangs and stuff and, and getting murdered by the police. Why is this, do you think that this happens so frequently? And, and yes, I do think some of it has to do with racism. I do believe that there is uh, uh, a part of this industry that is still sort of unwilling to see black people as fully complex and nuanced as everybody else. That being said, it would be remiss of me to not also acknowledge that 
this is also an industry that just remakes everything. You know, that's the reason buddy cop movies keep getting remade. That's the reason comic book movies keep getting remade. That's the reason why slavery movies keep getting remade because they say, you know what? We are risk averse. What has worked in the past and this has worked in the past. And so we want to do something that worked, has worked in the past. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not willing to say that it's all, it's because everybody's racist and yada, yada, yada. It's, I, I don't believe that. I think that, I think that it's, it's partially because also because people are just don't want to try new things. People are scared of trying new things in this industry. And this was something that felt new to people that was new to people. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, Cord Jefferson gets some words of wisdom from Spike Lee. He came up to me and he said, he said, make the next one as quickly as possible. Like, get it, get out there and make the next one as quickly as possible. Welcome back. I'm talking to Cor Jefferson, who just released his debut film, American Fiction. It's an awards darling. Pretty impressive for a first movie, which got me wondering, was Cord already feeling the pressure of expectation around whatever film he makes next? So I, it, for this podcast, I'm just instantly springing to mind two interviews. Emerald Fennell, who just had her second mm-hmm. film out this year, Saltburn, which I, I liked a lot, and following promising young woman. And we talked about the, the, the fear of the second film and she was sure too. like, mm-hmm. we talked about it. Like, promising young woman was great, but I'm never going to do this again ever. Right. Mm-hmm. And Steven Soderbergh, uh, wow. who, you know, uh, you know, made sex lies a videotape and then made five flops. They're not bad by the way, but they, they didn't make any money. And it was this, he, you know, it's like his, it's his, like his seventh film was his second film. You wow. Know, um, yeah. And so, I mean, I, I don't say that to put what the pressure you already know exists that you already have on you, but, you know, maybe there's some comfort in that <laughs> there's a familiar place for filmmakers to think, can I do it again? Yeah. And I think that, and I think that there is, um, you know, I, I sort of look at, at, at other filmmakers as sort of, uh, I try to sort of study other people's career decisions and the moves that they made uh, in order to sort of see what what seems appealing to me. And I think that on the one hand, there is a school of thought that it's like you should strike while the iron is hot, right? And sort of uh, try to try to make your next movie as quickly as possible. I showed the film and I showed the film in Spike Lee's uh, graduate school class at NYU and and uh, talked to some of his students and talked to Spike. And and afterward, he came up to me and he said, he said, make the next one as quickly as possible. Get it, get out there and make the next one as quickly as possible. And, um, then I've talked to other people who said, actually sort of be methodical and, and, and it's slow down. Like you're going to be allowed to make a second film. And so, so sit with it and sort of really decide what you want the second one to be. And so, um, I'm in the middle of, of deciding what I want to do right now. Fortunately, uh, I think that I'm in an overall deal at, for television at Warner brothers right now. And so I'm still, I'm contractually obligated to them for at least, I I believe, another year and a half or two years. And so uh, it is unlikely that they will let me go and make another movie in in that time. And so uh, I think fortunately I have time to sort of, I can bide my time. I'm writing three different scripts right now. And hopefully, you know, I can get those scripts done in the next year and a half and get them to a place when, um, you know, 
if and when my deal expires, I can just sort of like leap right into pre-production on one of those and get started again. So, um, yeah, I think that I, I really was, uh, thoughtful and painstaking for this, for this script. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the movie came together so quickly. And I think that, um, it just all starts with the script for me. It's the script, it's the script, it's the script. And so, I really want to make sure whatever I do, whether I start shooting a movie in two months from now or whether I start shooting a movie in two years from now, I want to make sure again that I feel like the script is as good as it can possibly be because that is sort of where everything grew from me. I'm like, uh, I don't know, 45 days out from uh, away from uh, or 45 days ago. I sort of met, I'd met Spike Lee before, but it was really just to say hello, but this was spending a couple hours with him for TCM yeah. talking about movies it's, it's very hard not to take Spike Lee's advice. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, is a, that is a powerful absolutely. force. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that, I think that, um, yeah, he is, he is a, uh, one of my heroes. I've, I've loved his work since I was a uh, boy. Um, that being said though, I think that it's, it's, you know, I think that I really need to, for me, I'm a slow writer. I'm a very slow writer. I'm a very slow reader. And I think that I am less inclined to dive right into the next thing. I mean, look, if I can sit down and finish one of these scripts um, in the next couple months and it's to a, it's to a place that I really, really love it, uh, then I'm all for, I think, directing another movie quickly if, if Warner Brothers will allow me. But until it's really there, I don't, I don't want to sort of ever... I don't want to try to rush something just to get something out there because I feel like I need to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Hopefully there's somebody out there who believes that I can do this even if I do it slowly. Well, you know, I mean, granted, this movie technically came out in 2023, but you're having your wide release in 2024 in January, which yeah. means you could have a movie released in December of 2025. And historically, it will look like you made a movie the next year, right? You that, know? Is <laughs> um, that is true. That is true. So maybe uh, <laughs> take a little of the pressure off Um so, uh, you know, it's funny, and you, you mentioned, you know, again, you said you're not a brave person, but you had a job, a good job at Gawker, working for Gawker, and, you know, you quit to try your hand right in television, which you'd never done. So there's the mm -hmm. job switching. There's this. There's then jumping from working as a, a, a reliably employed staff writer for good television, for really high quality TV shows, you know, uh, uh, the, the good place and succession and Watchmen. And then you gave your dad a kidney. I mean, yeah, those are all, those are all, those are all brave things. They are, they're different kinds of brave things, but they are brave things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, and it's, and you know, it's, as you said, I think that for me, all of those things terrified me. All of those things really, really terrified me. I was, I was worried that I would get, I would quit my job at Gawker and I would come to work in television and I would flame out and make a fool of myself. And I had did, I made this very public exit and said, I'm going to work on a TV show. And I thought, my God, what if I get there and I get fired after a week and it's humiliating. I have to come grovel and ask for my job back. And then, you know, when I was working in TV, I started thinking like, well, what if, you know, I don't know anything about Watchmen. What if I start? What if I work on this show and, and I make a fool of myself and it's a disaster or, or master of none? I just, all of these things were, were 
fear making for me and nervous making for me. And I think, and, you know, and donating a kidney, especially, I think that, you know, it's a major surgery. You can die from that. And so, but, but, you know, I think that all of those things, you know, I think that it's, it's a real, I think it's potentially sort of like the, the storytelling brain or the writer brain. Uh, I think that what always, 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 really motivates me to do something that is either maybe brave or maybe even stupid or reckless or, or foolish is, is I think that I, I kind of am unfortunately stricken with the brain that says like, but it might be a good story. So say yes. Right. If it could be a good story, you should say yes. Like, is this guy kind of weird? And this guy that you met at this party, is he a little strange? And is he saying, you know, he wants to, he wants to take you to a different party. And it's like, I think a lot of people say no to those kinds of things, but, but there, I've always had the instinct to say yes to those kinds of things, even if they feel, um, a little scary. And I think that even if I go and make a fool of myself, even if I quit my job and it's a disaster and I'm publicly humiliated, um, it's like, well, that's, that's, that's copy for something. That's sort of an idea that could spring from that. I, so I think that, that is really, I think, what probably my most, I think that I, the thing that I tell every young person who comes to me and asks me how to live an artistic life, the thing that I always tell them is that I think the number one thing you, thing you have to have is just a pure curiosity about everything. Like you, you should be, in order to be the best artist you can be, you, you have to be curious about everything. Like you have to really want to talk to weird people and go to strange places and break the rules sometimes in order to sort of like learn something that you might not otherwise learn. And I think that that is, um, you know, curiosity may be the thing that kills the cord one day, but, but I think that for, for, for me, it has really been, it has really been, I think the, the, the sort of like foundation of, of my entire life and certainly the foundation of my creative career. Um, all right. So, how did your dad get to be Larry Flint's lawyer? <laughs> oh my God. That's a curveball. That's you've done your research. <laughs> I read about Cord's dad and Larry Flint in an article he wrote in 2009 called the end of the aughts family business. It's about Cord's complicated relationship with his father. And that time his dad needed a kidney. That piece that told that story, which that part stood yeah. out to me, that is funny because yeah. uh, <laughs> um, uh, that piece is really good, really good. Thank you, um, thank you, thank you. Um, I mean, the piece is about something else, but it includes the part yeah. about, yeah. Thank you. So, so first, I'll preface it by saying my dad was not Edward Norton in The People versus Larry Flint. <laughs> my dad, my dad uh, had a very, very limited interaction with Larry Flint, but the way that he tells it uh, uh, is that. My dad used to be uh, out of law school. He was a defense attorney in Dayton, Ohio. And, um, you know, uh, at the time, Larry Flint had a lot of uh, strip clubs in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, was sort of, you know, I, I have to imagine running in with the law because he was, you know, having, I'm sure that there was a lot of. He's Larry Flint. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, Larry Flint. And so one night at. Uh, at some party that they were both at, uh, my dad was in a room with Larry Flint and Larry Flint pulled out, um, a bunch of cocaine 
and offered it uh, to everybody in the room. And, uh, and a lot of, a lot of uh, my dad's colleagues who were lawyers stepped up and were doing cocaine. And my dad's always been super, super anti-drugs. Like, like really, like he's never, he told me he tried, he smoked marijuana one time. We actually convinced him, we got him to, we got him to smoke weed last summer for the first time in like 50 years. And it was, it was, I mean, it was amazing. That's a different story. But, but um, so my dad abstained. He said, you know, that's not for me. And then he went home and the next morning he got a call uh, and, and he, and it was Larry Flint on the other line. And he said, you're the, you're that black lawyer that didn't do the Coke, right? <laughs> my dad, and my dad, and my dad said, yes, I am. And he said, he said, okay, I want you to be my attorney. So for a, for a, for a brief period of time, my dad was working with Larry Flint because I think Larry Flint realized that my dad was, uh, was not as, uh, corruptible maybe as, as the other attorneys in, in his, uh, circle. So he was <laughs> with a- him for a little bit. Such a great story. Um, well, it's interesting to talk to you now after reading that piece last night, because I guess you wrote the piece, what, in like 2008 or 2009, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, so um, long ago. But you write this in the piece in relation to what, like, to stop looking for these easy answers for why your dad drank and therefore, I guess, why he was so emotionally unavailable as a father. And you wrote mm-hmm. that. I read it to my wife last night. Too. Human beings do things. For about a thousand different reasons, most of which other people will never understand, even if it's likely they do similar things themselves. It's very, mm-hmm. very simply said, very <laughs> well said. Um, and so you, you, you were like, I'm not going to try and figure this out anymore. He needs, he's going to die unless one of his sons, he has three sons, your two half brothers, mm-hmm. unless one of his sons gives him a kidney. And, yes. and you were like, the right thing to do is not have that happen. It was yeah. sort of, you know, and I, I mean, yeah, you love him, obviously you're not going to. And so you, well, there's nothing obvious about it. I do like that in the letter he wrote saying that he needed a kidney. He was in living in Saudi Arabia where he was working. He ended the letter yeah. by writing in caps to all three of you. You do not have to give me a kidney. <laughs> like he didn't yes, want exactly. to get you guys into it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think that, you know, he's, he is, there's something else that I think that he is, he's been dealing with his entire life was just, just a lot of guilt. And I think that this only added to that guilt. And I think that this only added to his, um, his, uh, you know, his understanding of, 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 of why maybe uh, he was so distant from his sons. And so, or at least with me. And so I think that um, I, 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 I I took no pleasure in seeing him suffer. Uh, I, I really wanted to help him if I could. And, and I still felt incredibly distant from him. You know, I think that it's, it's wild. He, he, when he asked me, I didn't even hesitate. I didn't even think about it. And in sort of, and in sort of considering it and considering the fact that I I didn't hesitate at all, I wonder if it was because maybe I thought that this might make us closer somehow, maybe sort of like I thought that, this might sort of mend the distance between us. And, and I, you know, it maybe did for a little bit, but it didn't really, because I was, I was also, you know, being raised by a guy who is emotionally unavailable. I was completely emotionally unavailable. I never talked about my feelings. I never told him that I was angry at him. I never told him that, that, uh, I, I felt hurt by him. I never told him that I wanted our relationship to, I wanted us to be closer. 
um, because to me, I w- that would be exp- that would be too vulnerable, and I was not raised to be the vo- that vulnerable. Do, were you in therapy then? And you got to be. I mean, since then you have been, right? I mean, you. Or I no. was not. I was not. No, I was not. But I, oh yeah, since then, absolutely. Yeah. I've been. I've done so much therapy. It was twenty eighteen was a real breaking point for me. Twenty eighteen was a year that my career was going better than it ever had. I was making more money than I ever had. I was. I wrote on Good Place and Succession and Watchmen that year. I sort of had had this embarrassment of professional riches and and was and was really uh, sort of on a on a good trajectory. And yet, I was constantly miserable. You know, I was constant. I was. I, I was. I was. I would burst into tears over nothing. I would cry in the shower. I would cry in my car. Uh, it was just. Uh, I was. I was. You know. I remember uh, hearing a story after the fact that 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 year my dad and my brothers were together somewhere and my dad asked one of my brothers, you know, how's Cord doing? And, and one of my brothers said, how would we know? How do you expect us to know? You think that he tells us anything? So I, I was I was distant from my family. I was distant from girlfriends. I was I was I was distant from my friends. I it was two years out from my mother dying and I really hadn't dealt with that. It was just this whirlwind of things that I realized if I don't do something, um, I'm not going to be able to continue this. I, I just can't function. I'm not going to, uh, my life is going to fall apart unless I figure out to, how to, how I'm going to handle this stuff better. And so I, uh, I got into really, really intense therapy, really intense therapy at the end of that year. And it'll be, yeah, this year it'll be six years that I've been working with the same therapist, basically going every single week. Um, I started taking Zoloft also. I'm a, a, my 40th, my 40th birthday gift to myself was a gift of antidepressants. It's a, great, <laughs> it's a great gift. Yeah. 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 On the day, on the day of my 40th birthday, I started taking Zoloft and I've just, I'm in, I'm in such a, a, a better emotional place. And I think that that is really, if I had tried to direct this movie five years ago, if I had tried to make this movie five years ago, it would have been much, much different. And in my opinion, it would have been much, much worse because I would have, I would have been coming at it from a completely different place. When we return, the Super 8, where Cord Jefferson reveals the film that makes him cry without fail. And we're back. This is the part of the conversation where we ask our guests a series of set questions about movies they've watched, movies they've loved, and movies they'll never forget. We call it the Super 8. All right, let me do these Super 8 questions for you, Cord. Um, most memorable, uh, what's your most memorable movie watching experience? My most memorable movie watching experience, I'll, I've got two. The first is my parents taking me to see Do the Right Thing in theaters at the age of seven. Uh, this was this was Tucson, Arizona, so not the uh, biggest Spike Lee uh, fan <laughs> community there. So, but so so we were we were not uh, the theater was not very full, but it was me, a seven year old boy, and my white mother and my black father going to see Do the Right Thing on the weekend it opened and. Uh, I just remember falling in uh, falling in love with Rosie Perez. Nope. I remember not yeah. not really knowing what was going on in the movie and not fully understanding it, but thinking it was very interesting and exciting. Um, and uh, leaving there, 
knowing that one day I was going to live in New York City. Like I remember having that feeling like that place is interesting. And one day I'm going to live in the city where that movie was shot. And then the second one, they're both they're, they're both experiences in which I saw movies way too early. And then the second <laughs> one is Jacob's Jacob's Ladder. My, I, my parents sort of like were, were pretty loose with the, with the restrictions on what I couldn't couldn't watch. And we had HBO in my house from from as 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 long as I can remember. And so I remember catching one night Jacob's Ladder on HBO and at the age of 11 or so and really, really freaking out. Like, like it is, that is by far the worst nightmares that I've ever had. And I remember my, my mother, I got so scared that my mother had to sleep in my bed with me that night because I just kept waking up screaming. But um, both of those movies, I think, are very foundational for me. To this day, Spike Lee is a huge hero of mine and Adrian Lin is a huge hero of mine. So Yes, I was probably too young to see those movies, but they left an indelible impression on me. Yeah, well, I mean, every director who I talked to, man, they saw movies early, you know, too early. But, you know, somehow that <laughs> yeah, totally translates into right. great work later, you <laughs> yeah. know. Because it leaves, yeah, I mean, especially on a seven-year-old's mind, those Jacob's Ladder and Do the Right Thing. I mean, those are imprints, right? You yeah, know, so. it's impossible to forget them. <laughs> yeah. Um, a movie you loved in high school. Clueless. I loved Clueless so much. I thought Clueless was amazing when it when it came out. And I really um yeah, I just I thought it was so funny. I thought it was really smart. Um I thought it was it, yeah, I just I, I loved it. And I had no idea that it was an adaptation of, of this sort of like uh historical classic. I, I I just really loved it and thought it was wonderful. And Cruel Intentions. Again, I think that there was a lot of those really great high school movies that were based, you know, Cruel Intentions on Dangerous Liaisons. Yep. Like there was all these really great high school movies at the time that were based on these really classic, um sexy, sort of like uh old old books. And 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 so so those two really stood out to me. I really loved those when I was in high school. Yeah, my 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 I have a ten year old daughter. She loves clues. I've seen clues eight times as a result of my daughter uh, loving clues. It's incredible. It's, uh, no, it's really good. I think uh, Jane Austen, yeah. Emma. That's the Jane Austen book. I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, a movie that you'd show a date. Somebody you were interested in. Ooh, uh, Punch Drunk Love. I think Punch Drunk Love is one of my. A, I love Los Angeles. I. I I have spent 12 years here now, and I think it's one of uh, my favorite love stories ever committed to film. I think it's uh, really, really funny. Uh, my one of my probably my favorite actor that I could ever hope to work with, but will never be able to, is Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think he was probably my favorite actor, um, and I just think it's uh, so well done, so beautiful, so funny, so smart, and so uh, you know, it's just a really it's a grown up love story. In a way that I love, it's a gr- I think it's a rom com almost, basically. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's just got a little drama in it. That's awesome. It's got yeah, some genuine yeah. drama and some and different kind of laughs. I'm looking at your face, and I just want to smash it. I just want to fucking smash it with a sledgehammer and squeeze it. You're so pretty. I'm chewing your face, and I want to scoop out your eyes, and I want to eat them, chew them, and suck them. Okay. This is funny. Yeah. Uh, movie that uh, makes you cry without fail. Uh, do you cry at movies? Oh yeah, yeah. But it always sneaks. It's, it generally sneaks up on me. But um, I think that 
A movie that makes me cry without fail is probably, uh, I would say, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption always really makes me makes me cry in, in a very real way. There's that scene at the end where Morgan Freeman is reading is reading the letter. He finds the letter. You know, he gets out and he goes and he finds the letter and he's sitting there and he's reading it and. Uh, he says, and 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 he's sitting there, and he says, he says, I hope that the sand is as white as I as I imagine it is, and I hope the water's as blue as I imagine. I'm getting emotional right now just thinking about this. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. He very easily, they very easily could have just had him thinking about this and ended the, ended the film with him saying that and ended the film on Morgan Freeman's face and not given you, not given you the thing of seeing him approach Andy on the beach and, and, and them being so excited to see each other. They could have ended it there, but there is something really satisfying about seeing him come to Andy and seeing them excited to see each other. There's something really satisfying about that. Even though, yes, it's like it's it's maybe a little too far, but I just remember thinking like, oh God, like that, it, it, that every time it makes me cry. It's just I think it's one of the, I think it's just such a beautiful. I like love stories that aren't necessarily about romantic love, and I think the love stories about friendship, love, and sort of like platonic love, and just loving another human being, um, is is and and supporting a human being is really. I I, I think that those are so beautiful. And I think that that is a really that is a movie about a love story that I just think is so gorgeous. And that that ending when he walks to him is just it makes me cry every time. So I got to tell you this story, Cord. So I I've seen that movie, you know, because it was on. It was always on. It was on when you used to flip channels, which doesn't happen anymore. Exactly. It was always on, yeah. and no matter what you were doing or where it was in the movie, you stayed. Right. I mean, it's a pretty exactly. perfect movie, and 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 guys, of our generation tend to feel that way. So I've interviewed Frank yeah. Darabont a few times. I've gotten to know him pretty well. I've done some events with him and. He's a really kind and interesting man. And uh, yeah, and he is very honest. He, because I said to him, I go, that ending could have been so hokey. It just it yeah. could have ruined the movie, as you inferred, right? Exactly. And he exactly. said, I thought it would ruin the movie, and I did not want to shoot. I didn't want to do it. Wow. And the studio asked me to do it. And they said, look, man, we're here. we'll give you money. You have the money for it. And if it doesn't wow. work, it's up to you. You don't have to put it in. And he goes, look, it's just one of those things where they were right. They were right. They were wow. right. They were right. They were right. Yeah. That's um, amazing. And I think that there is, there's a really good lesson in there. It's like, give the, so, 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 uh, Mike Schur, a, 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 a writing hero of mine and one of my mentors, I worked on the good place with him. He tells this story that when Jim proposes to Pam. Cause he, in, Mike, um, Mike Schur worked in the office. He did Brooklyn nine, he worked nine. On the office. Yeah. He genius. Yeah, he was a, meaningful yeah. comedies. Yeah. Yeah, he was a Greg Daniels acolyte there. Yeah. He was one of Greg Daniels' first hires for The Office. And so when it, when it finally came time in that show for Jim to propose to Pam, they shot it three different ways. They shot it um, – I'm going to see if I'm going to get this right. I'm going to butcher it a little bit. But I think it, they shot it really far away at first. They sort of like did one where it's like you just see him rush to her in the rain and the cameras are far away as if they couldn't get there and get close to them. And you have no idea what he's saying. You just see him sort of like come up to her. You don't hear, the, you don't hear what they're saying. And he, and he gets down on one knee 
and he puts out a ring and you see her kind of freak out from across the street through the rain and you have no idea what they're saying. And uh, they shot that ending. It's like, great. And then they and then they shot one where you could kind of hear what they were saying across the street. And, but but it was still from far away. And then they did one closer and you could sort of like it was with them. You saw him. You saw everything they were saying. You saw the emotion on their faces. You heard everything they were saying. And Mike said he was in the edit and looking at it with Greg Daniels. And, and he said, no, the one far away is great. It's really cinematic. And it's like this French new wave thing. And it's like, it's beautiful. And we don't have to hear what they say. We understand what they're saying and allows the audience to, to, to sort of like imagine what's going on. And he said that Greg Daniels turned to him and he says, he says, look, man, people have been waiting years for this. People like the audience has been waiting for years for this. And like, to take that away from them because we want it to be artsy is <laughs> absurd. And he was like, it's absurd to do that to them. And he's like, and he's like, we have to put it in. Like we ha- it has to be the one where it's close and we can hear what they're saying. And it's like, you know, I, I think that that to me is, is, is uh, it was an important lesson. It's the same lesson there. I cannot believe that Frank Darabont said that because that is that moment. I've always thought like, man, this could have gone so sideways and just been like the cheesiest ending. But I always cry. I always cry. Uh, filmmaker or an actor from the past who you, if you go back in time, you'd, you'd want to make a movie with filmmaker, uh, uh, is, um, filmmaker is, uh, Kubrick. Yeah. I would say I'm a huge Kubrick fan. And what's your, what's your favorite Kubrick movie? Can I jump in there with that one? Mine's yeah, paths, I think, mine's paths of glory. By the way, just to, oh my god, paths of paths of glory is amazing. Um, I really love the killing. That's amazing. Yeah. But I think that probably, I think probably uh, eyes wide shut may be my favorite of his. Oh wow, I think that I really really love eyes wide shut. I think that that is. I know that's a controversial answer, but I think eyes wide no, shut is my favorite of his. Um, but I also I also love Son of Vietnam veteran. I love Full Metal Jacket. I think that's amazing. Um, and then actor is Philip Seymour Hoffman, definitely. No, yeah, okay. All right, you're a thief for this uh, question. A vast warehouse of movie props. Every prop in every movie ever. You're a thief. What do you steal? Uh, I think this would be uh, the bad motherfucker wallet from Pulp Fiction. It's a good call. It's yeah. It's a, <laughs> a great call. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, did your dad have a favorite movie? Does your dad have a favorite uh, movie? Young Frankenstein. Oh, my God. Mel Brooks, one of the people we're uh, doing for this uh, podcast. So, uh, Are you serious? I just, yeah. saw him, I just saw him at the Academy Gala last, last night, man. It is, uh, that is, uh, he is an amazing. He's, he's probably one of the, the four of sort of like if there's like four pillars of my, of my sense of humor, it's, it's pro- he is easily one of them. That, I watched Young Frankenstein and uh, Bl- Blazing Saddles over and over and yeah. over when I was a kid. Those were two huge ones for my father. That's a wonderful answer. What about, uh, did your mom have a favorite movie? Yes, she did. And I believe it was Philadelphia, Tom Hanks. All right, I'll take that. uh, That's another another movie that never fails to make me cry. Yeah, it's a movie that I didn't remember liking because I didn't like the dream sequence scene. And that put me off. I don't like when things get surreal, but I rewatched it a couple years ago for a thing we did on TCM. And I thought, wow, I was wrong. This is really good. (laughs) This is really good. Maybe. 
You know what? I've maybe I've blacked out this the the uh, dream sequence because I don't remember that. Either. It's just it's like a, he's like in a fever dream. He's listening to the opera music. Um, Hanks is. Oh, it yeah. doesn't matter. It's not. It's not enough to okay, dislike. Yes. And and both <laughs> and both Hanks and and Denzel Washington are so are so great. Yeah. Yeah. So my last question to you, uh, Cord, is sort of what we started with. I started with that little pointless line about. Uh, you know, you thought about being an actor because you you could manage somehow to look so different, whether you wear glasses or whether you shave. <laughs> and 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 then you brought up, you gave a real answer no, that Jeffrey course. Wright had said, maybe maybe this will help you deal with actors. Yeah, it was an interesting thing for Jeffrey Wright to say. Did you feel like you something you need to work on, or or obviously, or just something that you can always everybody can get better at? I think it's something everybody can get better at. You know, I think that that that, that is. Uh, that is the one thing that I had never really done before. You know, I had made, I had been in rooms where we were, I had been in the edit bay before on TV shows. I had, I had been sort of like helping with casting decisions here and there. Um, obviously not to the extent that I did on the film, but uh, normally w- when you're in a, when you're in a TV writer's room, especially if you're not the showrunner, you're never really sort of like coming up with the character. I was on set, but I was on set to sort of like help rewrite jokes or lines if they weren't working. Uh, or to sort of like explain lines to the actors. Outside of that, though, I wasn't really working with them on finding the character. And so I think sort of finding the character and working on 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 explaining what emotion you want out of a scene and what sort of emotional reaction you want out of a scene and sort of like uh, different different takes and sort of like uh, different different things to try in the scene. That's all stuff that I think that I still need to get better at and that I want to get better at. You know, I think that I, I watched. Uh, Kurosawa's, um, I believe it was Kurosawa's, uh, uh, when he received a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, and, and he said that, you know, I think he was in his 80s, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I still consider myself a, a student of cinema. You know, I think that I am still learning, and I think that that to me is is the best way to look at at it. Is is just that I'm always going to be trying to learn. I don't ever want to feel like I'm I'm uh, fully baked. I think that it's a, you're always like if you really want to grow, you always got to be half baked. Cord Jefferson, first film, uh, American fiction, first feature film as a director. Uh, I look forward to seeing you Thank in you person so uh, Friday. Um, this will be long over by the time people hear this, so that'll be an awkward conversation. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thank you. It's been a lot no, of fun. Thank, thank you, you for uh, opening up so much. This, uh, that was I, I, I'm appreciative. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I hope this came across in the interview, but Cord Jefferson is the kind of guy you want to be friends with. Cord and I should get coffee. In fact, Cord, if you're listening, I'm free right now. Uh, give me a call, a 3102. Okay, all right. Cord reminded me how good Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love is, how strong Adam Sandler is in a serious film. And you should check out Cord's episode of Watchmen on Max. It's episode six. It'll draw you in, and my bet is you'll end up watching the entire series. I'll definitely be watching Shawshank Redemption this year as the film celebrates its 30th anniversary. That ending may be a little hokey, but man, it's just perfect. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find many of the movies we talked about on the streaming service Max. We made a list for you. It's in our show notes. James Kim produces and edits Talking Pictures. Dory Stegman books the show. Glenn Matullo mixes each episode. Thanks to Phil Richards, Yako Friedman, Julie Baton, Katie Daniels, and Emma Morris. Angela Carone is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen from the Max Podcast team. 
And as always, to Charlie Tavish from TCM. See you next time.